0: Good morning, everyone. Well, it's a fourth Sunday again. They come around pretty quickly, don't they? And uh, so we take a break from our current preaching series in Exodus to explore an area of Christian apologetics. And the question that I've chosen for us this morning is the one that caused me the most trouble in my teens, and I have to confess it continued to nag away at me um, even in my early years of a, as a Christian. And that question is can I really trust the Bible? For me, this was an absolutely fundamental issue because Jesus wasn't walking the earth when I became a Christian. And he isn't here now in the flesh for us to speak to face to face. I wasn't present at his death, I wasn't present at his resurrection. So if I was going to believe in him, I needed to be sure that what was written about him in this book was absolutely true. You know, some people are gifted with a supernatural confidence in God's power and his promises. They have the spiritual gift of faith and it helps them to take a stand and to do heroic things for the future of God's church. They may not necessarily be the visionaries in the church, but they are the ones that help the church to achieve their vision because they have this supernatural confidence that allows them to take risks that perhaps others of us wouldn't. Things that we might consider a risk, they consider a sure thing. And Hebrews 11 lists such people. People like Noah, who by faith toiled away building an ark when there wasn't any water around. People like Joshua, who marched around Jericho in obedience to God's command, waiting for God to hand the city over to them rather than trying to attack it themselves. The spiritual gift of faith is a wonderful thing. And it is such a blessing to God's people, but not all of us have it. And at the other end of the spectrum, it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians can go through their lives with a nagging doubt about something that they believe in and just live with that doubt all of their lives without ever resolving it. Now, as a teenager, I fell somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. I didn't have that supernatural confidence in what I was reading. I didn't have that gift of faith and yet I couldn't live with the tension of doubt in my life. If I was going to believe what the Bible told me, I needed to be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that what was written there was first of all true and that it was inspired by God. Now, there are many ways that we could tackle this topic this morning, but what I've decided to do is to simply work my way through one of the examples that bugged me when I was a new Christian. Now, somewhere along the way, most seekers or new Christians are eventually advised to start their Bible reading at the Gospels rather than to start from page one and try and work their way through all of the Old Testament. Somewhere along the way, generally, they get advice that they should start at the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And so they read their first Gospel and then they move on to the second and then the third and pretty soon an astute reader will start to notice some differences in those Gospel records. Some things have been left out by one author and included by another. Perhaps the order is different. And most of those things we can reconcile. But when it comes to the same story that is recorded four times with what appears to be conflicting accounts, that's when doubts start to creep in. Can I really trust the Bible? We're going to work our way through the record of the resurrection of Christ because surely this is absolutely fundamental to our faith. So important was this event that all four gospel writers chose to include it and they chose to include quite a deal about it. Trouble is if you look closely enough, you will discover some very obvious differences in those details that each writer has chosen to include. Things like who went to the tomb. Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark says it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Luke says it was the women who went to the tomb. And John records only Mary Magdalene. What happened? at the tomb. Matthew says there was a violent earthquake and an angel came down from heaven to speak with the women. Then the women meet Jesus who instructs them to go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Mark records no earthquake but he adds that the women brought spices and that there was a young man dressed in white robes sitting inside the tomb On the right hand side, who spoke to the women before they fled. Luke also records this detail about the spices, but he records not one, but two men in gleaming clothes who stand beside the women and speak to them. Luke records the fear of the women and that at least some of them returned to report what they saw to the eleven apostles. John tells us that when Mary Magdalene found the stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb, she ran off to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple, who is not named, and they ran to the tomb and found the linen strips and the folded burial cloth, just as she had said. They then returned to their homes, leaving Mary at the tomb, and it was then that she encountered the two angels before speaking to someone that she thought was a gardener who turned out to be Jesus himself. So you see we have four different accounts of the same event with different details of what happened on that great and glorious morning. Should that be something that we should be concerned about? Do these differing accounts mean, as sceptics would claim, that the Bible is unreliable? What are we to do with this evidence? Now, before we go any further, I want you to think back to this time last week. For those of you that viewed last week's live stream or, or watched it later on on DVD, think back to this time last week. And imagine that you were telling someone who wasn't able to listen what happened. What would you tell them? Perhaps you might say, well, Pastor Glenn preached from Exodus and he was covering chapters 3 and 4 and he focused on the reasons that Moses gave to explain to God why he was unsuitable for the task that he was being presented with and how God responded To each of those claims. Perhaps you might be able to give some detail around the response that was made. Perhaps you might be able to recount some of the illustrations that Plaster used or in summary you might mention that there's a lot in chapters three and four and he could really only focus on those main themes. If you said any or all of those things you would be correct but you would also be leaving out the fact that I was here last week as well. Perhaps you might state, well, Caroline did the introduction and then Pastor Glenn preached from chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus. If you said that, you would be correct. You might have said, Pastor Caroline did the introduction and then she prayed before Pastor Glenn spoke from chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus. Or you might go into detail about the song that I had used in my introduction and prayer and why I felt that was relevant for that particular day. Perhaps you might have discussed the beautiful red camellia floral arrangements that Esther uh, made for us. Even if you failed to mention anything about the sermon, you would still be correct because all of those things happened last week. And if I were to ask any four different people who watched last week's live stream what happened, I wouldn't expect all four of you to give exactly the same description. What you report will depend upon what stuck out for you, what you thought was most important and what struck a chord in your heart. And I see this every week. Perhaps not many of you realise, but Christy keeps an Instagram account for Pathway Baptist Church, which she updates with thoughts from the message each week. And so generally on a Sunday afternoon, about 3 or 4 o'clock, Christy will contact whoever's been preaching and she'll send us what she's about to upload, just for us to double-check. Now, these things are not easy to put together. She has to condense a whole sermon into a one- or two-line grab. And sometimes I'll look at it and go, yes, that's exactly what I would have written as a summary. And other times I think, hmm, it's not what I would have said, but it's not incorrect. It's what struck a chord with Christy from the message on that particular morning. Nothing she's ever written has been wrong, but it's written from her perspective and it's what touched a chord with her. And that might be different to how God spoke to me through that particular message. Either way, it's okay. Both are correct. And sometimes the way we recount facts might be different for different audiences. The same person might give two different accounts depending on who they're speaking to. And if we return to that exercise about last week's live stream, if I told you you were to recount what happened last week to someone who'd never been inside a church and perhaps never read a Bible at all or even seen one, then you might give a quite different account of what happened last week. You might explain who was speaking on the day because they don't know either of the people who were speaking on the day. You wouldn't assume that the person you were speaking to had any knowledge of Israelite history or of who Moses is or what the book of Exodus is, so you'd still be telling the same story, but it would sound very different because you had a very different audience. And this is all normal human behaviour, to adjust the details to suit your audience or to suit your perspective. And sceptics love these sort of differences in detail that we see in the resurrection accounts. See, they'll say, four different writers with four different stories, how could anyone really trust the Bible? And to that I would say, four different writers with detail for detail identical stories, how could anyone really trust that? No court in the country would trust the testimonies of four different witnesses that were word for word identical. There's a name for that. It's called collusion. And it leads jurors to doubt witness testimony. All of the gospel accounts of the resurrection differ only in their detail. And none of these details affect the main facts of the story. In all of the accounts, no one actually saw the resurrection as it was happening. They only saw the evidence of it and they saw Jesus in some of his post-resurrection appearances. In all of the stories, the women were the first witnesses. The tomb was found empty, there was involvement of an angel or angels and the women had to explain to the men what had happened. The key point in each of these stories is the same. Jesus rose, his body wasn't there, he's alive. And on that, there's not even the slightest hint of discrepancy in any of these accounts. None of the Gospel writers were present, at least initially, at the tomb. So all of them are recounting what was told to them, presumably by the women. Does the fact that John mentions only Mary preclude there being other women present at the tomb? No, of course it doesn't. Does the fact that only two mention the women bringing spices mean that Matthew and John are inaccurate in their reporting? No, it doesn't. It just means that that was a detail they chose not to include. They chose other details. Does a description of only one angel in several of the gospel accounts preclude that there could have been two? Of course not. You have to have one for it to be possible to have two. Matthew records the detail of the earthquake. Perhaps that account of the supernatural appealed to him or perhaps it was important to his audience. Matthew also ends his account with the disciples heeding the advice of the women and going to meet with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee. Now this is reminiscent of the giving of the law and so it's significant for his predominantly Jewish audience. He's connecting this new covenant with the old one and adding the detail of the Galilee mountaintop meeting where Jesus gave the Great Commission. Luke's account ends in Jerusalem, which sets the scene for his second volume, the early church record of Acts. And John is the only one who includes the details of Simon Peter and this other disciple whom Jesus loved racing to the empty tomb after Mary brings her report to them. And it's not hard to understand why that detail might take up so much of John's account if you hold to the majority view that this other disciple whom we're told Jesus loved is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. For him, this race to the tomb and what he saw there were life-changing experiences. And even if they're not one and the same person, well, you still have two additional perspectives here, Simon Peter and this other disciple. And depending on who you used to provide your eyewitness account, whether it was Mary or one of the other women or Simon Peter or this other disciple, it's quite easy to see how the emphasis and the details reported could be slightly different depending on what struck them. None of this changes the outcome of the story, just the details reported. And this is the same for so many of the little discrepancies in the reports in the Gospels. None of them, not a single one, differ in the fundamentals of what they are reporting, only in the details. Take the crucifixion of Christ. Some record that Simon of Cyrene was called upon to help carry the cross. Others don't. Which words of Jesus from the cross are reported in each of the Gospels is slightly different. It doesn't mean he didn't say all those other words, it just means that that particular writer could only put in a certain amount in each of their records. Some record the insults that were hurled at him. Matthew records an earthquake. Again, there's that same interest in the supernatural in his account. The synoptics record the reaction of the centurion. John links Jesus with the Passover lamb, with his comments about the legs not being broken and his quotation of Old Testament prophecy. Again, one event and four accounts, differing in their detail or emphasis, but all of them with the same plot, reporting the same key detail, that this Jesus was crucified. And this issue isn't specific only to the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you look hard enough, you'll find a smattering of these right through the Gospels. Remember the centurion who wanted Jesus to go and heal his servant? Well, Matthew records that the centurion came to Jesus in Capernaum. But Luke says that the centurion sent some of the elders of the Jews to go and make the request of Jesus. Well, they can't both be correct, can they? Well, actually, they can if you consider that Matthew's account of this incident is abbreviated. It's 83 words shorter than Luke's is. And given that Matthew's gospel is the longest and probably pushing the bounds of what you could fit on a scroll it's understandable that some of his accounts may have had to have been abbreviated and he's had to choose what he leaves out. And what Matthew has chosen to leave out is the non-essential bit about the elders being the initial go-betweens. Does it matter? No, because it's the non-essential part. Both Matthew and Luke record the great faith of the centurion who told Jesus that he only needed to say the word and his servant would be healed. That's the essential part of this story. So whilst sceptics might point to these variations as reasons not to trust the Bible, I would argue that those very same variations are precisely the reasons that we can trust and believe that what we have in the Gospel records is a true and accurate account of what happened based on the eyewitness accounts of real people and remembering also that much of this information was passed on orally by oral tradition. So it's it's not hard to understand how we've got what we have today. Let's return to the resurrection account again and look at it from another perspective. Imagine for a minute that the resurrection didn't actually happen. Imagine you're part of the early church, devastated because the one that you thought was the Messiah and had pinned all of your hopes on had just died. So the early church executive or board decide that they better get together and figure out what they're going to do about this. We look like fools, one of them says. What are we going to do? And so they set about making a story that's going to convince everyone that the resurrection actually happened. So enter into the Jewish mindset here. Is what we have in the Gospel records the kind of story that you would make up if you were trying to convince your fellow Jews of a resurrection that didn't actually happen. This story would be laughable were it not actually true because it's so far from what you would make up if you were trying to convince anyone from that time of the legitimacy of the resurrection. Imagine these four early church executive members sitting around a tree in their robes and sandals right, now how are we going to start this story off? I know, says one, let's have a bunch of women go to the tomb. And his mate would look across at him from the other side of the tree, say, what, are you stupid or something? We can't have a bunch of women. No one is going to believe the testimony of a bunch of women. Because in Jewish culture, women had no legal standing as witnesses. So their testimony would have been invalid. That's the worst possible way you could start a story if you were trying to make it sound believable. Having women as your first witnesses would be a dreadful way to start a fabricated account. Likewise, the Jews would have had a certain expectation of the resurrected Jesus. They would have expected him to be portrayed in his resurrected glory. Instead, in all of these accounts... He does ordinary things like walking along the road and eating, and nobody seems to even recognize who he is. And when they finally do, they're afraid of him. He tells them repeatedly not to be afraid of him, but still they seem to be. Jesus just seems to come and go. He seems almost as if he's able to walk through the walls. There's no adulation from the crowds. This is definitely not how you would portray the resurrected Jesus if you were to make up a story for the Jews. The disciples in our gospel accounts of the resurrection, some of them are still doubting. Now that's a fact you would leave out for sure if you were trying to convince others. If you were making up the story, everyone would recognise him in his glory. Perhaps they'd fall at their knees in awe, but they definitely wouldn't be doubting. Also conspicuous by its absence is any appeal to scripture in the resurrection accounts. If you were trying to convince Jews who knew their scriptures well, wouldn't you link the resurrection to passages such as Hosea 6.2, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence or to the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale, or maybe to the Psalms, Psalm 1610, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That's what Peter did later in his Pentecost speech in Acts 2 when he was trying to convince them. His speech is littered with Old Testament prophecy because a Jewish audience appreciates it and understands it. If the resurrection accounts were fabricated, without a doubt what we have in our Gospels is not what they would look like. Instead, what we have is four accounts of the same core event that differ in their detail because they're written by four different and very much real people. People who would not, at the time, have been aware that what they were writing would become scripture. Certainly, they wrote their accounts to record the details of these eyewitness accounts for others, but at the time they would have had no idea that their writings would be included in a book that would remain on the top of the bestsellers list in 2020, with the Guinness Book of Records estimating more than 5 billion copies having been printed. Now, if we want to be all clinical about this, in a court of law, witness testimony alone generally needs to be weighed up against the evidence. And in the case of the written testimony of the Bible, the historical evidence stands alongside it through the archaeological records. Returning to our worked example of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what archaeological evidence do we have? to back any of the biblical claims. Well, until relatively recently, there was little evidence outside of the biblical record to support the existence of any of the people mentioned in the Gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Aside from the Gospels, Pilate, who plays a key role in the passion of Christ, is known from only a few brief records in the Roman histories and a handful of coins that are said to have been minted by him. That changed in 1961, during the excavation of an ancient Roman theatre in Caesarea. Caesarea had at that time replaced Jerusalem as the administrative capital of Judea in about 6 AD, and it was home base for Pontius Pilate. What What archaeologists discovered appears to have been a dedication stone. It's known as the Pilate Stone and it contains a partial inscription in Latin which reads when it's translated into English to Tiberius Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. It confirms not only his position as Prefect of Judea but also places him within that same era as the death of Christ. So archaeology in this Respect can help us verify the people and the places linked to the events in the Bible, but it can also help us to understand the culture of the time. For example, some sceptics have argued that crucified criminals would never have received an honourable Jewish burial. Therefore, by extension, the empty tomb story, they argue, must be a fabrication Instead, they claim the corpses would have been left to be eaten by animals, either on the cross or in the shallow graves of criminals. This theory was debunked in 1968, when a building contractor accidentally unearthed burial tombs containing bones of two generations from one family. The left heel bone of one member of this family had a seven-inch nail driven through it with fragments of olive wood still stuck to the tip of that nail, demonstrating that victims of crucifixion could indeed receive an honourable Jewish burial, just as the Gospel accounts claim for Jesus. Now I've mentioned only two finds relevant to our worked example today, but the whole Bible has stood the test of time and the rigours of archaeological examination and it has withstood far more than just the rigours of archaeology. As an aside, it's interesting that so many of these tests for reliability that we apply to the Bible and expect the Bible to jump through, we don't impose on other types of literature from the same time. But that's okay, because God has designed this little book to withstand whatever humans might like to throw at it. And a lot has been thrown at it over time. How does Jesus stack up historically, archaeology aside? Well, outside of the Bible, his existence is recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. He describes James as the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. But from the Roman politician Tacitus, we get a record of the death of Jesus that aligns completely with the gospel accounts. He records Jesus as being executed while Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in charge of Judea and Tiberius was the emperor. And Pliny, who was the governor in the region of northern Turkey in the early 2nd century, records Christians worshipping Christ as a god. All of these non-biblical records, together with the huge body of writings from the early church fathers, attest to the, biblical, the reliability of the biblical account of Jesus. Some have said, well, the Bible was written some 2,000 years ago, and we have none of the original manuscripts. Our Bibles are based on copies of these original manuscripts because the original manuscripts have decayed or disappeared over time. How can we be sure that what we have in our Bibles is what was actually written way back then? Well you could ask the same question about any piece of literature but people tend not to, they tend only to ask such a question of the Bible. But if you do the comparison not only does the Bible do well, it comes out streaks ahead of any other body of ancient literature on this measure of reliability. New Testament was written roughly between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest known manuscript copy that we have dates from 125 AD, so there's a 25 year gap there between when it was written and the earliest copy that we have. In terms of the number of manuscript copies that we have of the New Testament, That figure currently stands at more than 24,000. In all of the ancient Greek and Latin literature, Homer's Iliad, which is an ancient Greek poem set during the Trojan War, is considered to have the greatest textual attestation. It was written in 900 BC and the earliest known copy dates to 400 BC. So roughly a 500-year gap between when it was written and the earliest copy that we have. In terms of the number of manuscript copies, 643 known copies. So the New Testament, 25 years between writing and earliest copy, 24,000 copies. Iliad, 500 years between writing and the earliest known copy, but only 643 compared to the Bible's 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. The Bible comes out miles in front. Now remember I said that that was the best of the Greek and Latin literature. There's plenty worse that we depend on for our historical records. What about Aristotle? 1,400 years between writing and the earliest known copy in existence, and only 49 copies of his work. Caesar, 1,000 years between writing and the earliest known copy, only 10 copies in existence. The historical documents of Thucydides or Herodotus, both considered classics of ancient history, 1,300 years between writing and the earliest known existing copy and only eight copies of each in existence 24,000 compared to eight which one would you back in terms of accuracy it's a no brainer when compared to any other ancient work the New Testament comes out miles ahead by this measure how does the Old Testament stack up well For a long time, it seemed based on manuscript evidence that it perhaps wasn't that much better than some of the other ancient literature. That was until a young Bedouin shepherd stumbled upon a cave inside a steep rocky hillside on the rim of the Dead Sea. He was looking for a stray sheep. The year was 1947. Intrigued, he picked up a stone to throw it into the cave to see how deep the cave went. And what came back at him was the noise of smashing earthenware pots. These pots were later found to contain scrolls which have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And among them were the Old Testament manuscripts dated back 1,000 years earlier than any other previous copy known. Within there, there were some copies of Isaiah and these we have found to be 95% identical to today's Hebrew Bible and in the 5% where they differ, this consists mostly of spelling mistakes and common slips of the pen type differences. If you're interested in that sort of thing, one of the best summaries of this type of information can be found in Josh McDowell's book a ready defence. If you've done the Alpha course, some of this is also covered in the Alpha course. The Bible, more than any other book, has been proked and prodded from every angle and it has withstood whatever challenges we might seek to throw at it. Is it a reliable account? Definitely. Has its record been preserved through the years? Yes, it would seem fastidiously so. One question remains, and it is an important question, is it the word of God? The Bible claims to be the word of God, so can we depend upon it being inspired by God or is it just a human historical account? How would you go about proving that? The short answer is that you can't really it is a matter of faith. Some, as we said earlier, are gifted with great faith and for the rest of us we need reasons for our faith. But that's okay because there are plenty of reasons for us to choose from. Why do I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Well, here is a book like no other that has withstood the test of time and every criticism that the world could throw at it. Can you think of any other book with more than 40 authors that has been written over a 1500 year time span in three different original languages with a multitude of literary styles, it's got lore, it's got poetry, it's got history, it's got narrative, it's got parable, it contains letters and songs, there's apocalypse and prophecy. Yet from the beginning to the end, all of these authors over all of this time tell one consistent story. There is no other book like that and that's no accident. That is God telling his own story of the redemption of mankind through those that he's chosen to write it down. Can you think of any other book that has predicted major historical events, including the AD 70 destruction of the temple? And yet it doesn't seek to hide the flaws in so many of its key characters, like Saul, David and Moses, just to name a few. Can you think of a book that has stood up to its critics and survived numerous attempts to burn it or ban it, that has five billion copies printed and has been published in more languages and read by more people than any other book? Can you name any other book that has had met, made anything like the impact that the Bible has on our world? The ethics taught by Jesus in the Bible have shaped our world, bringing an end to the slave trade and bringing rights to workers and women and children Upon it, the civil rights movement was founded. It helped to shape modern democracy, the Magna Carta, the right to vote, the US Bill of Rights. All of these were the work of Bible-believing Christians. The Bible has inspired laws that protect the underprivileged, inspired campaigns to make poverty history, and a groundswell of grassroots community action. To support and protect the vulnerable in our society. Can you think of any other book that has had that sort of impact on our world? All over the world, people have been willing to put their lives at risk to own a copy of this one little book or to put it in the hands of others. There is no other book like it. Indeed, nothing even comes close. You cannot unequivocally prove to someone that the Bible is the word of God because ultimately its life-changing power is something that can only be experienced in faith. We have something remarkable on our bookshelves, something that has been so carefully preserved down through the years for us, something potentially life-changing. We have the very word of God. So let's not leave it unopened on our bookshelves. Get into it. Mine it for all of its treasure and don't be afraid to investigate any doubts you might have. The Bible is more than able to take your doubts. It has withstood plenty worse over the years. So be sure of the reasons for your faith. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for leaving us your word. It is precious and it is life-changing. It is comforting and yet confronting. It is inspiring and humbling. We love your word. Lord, may we always be a people that treasures your word and that prioritises spending time in it. You said to the prophet Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you, tell you great and mysterious things that you do not know. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give understanding to each one of us this week as we read your word. Show us the great and mysterious things that we do not know or fully understand yet. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen. I'd like to close our time together this morning and send you out into your week with the Apostle Paul's wise words to his younger co-worker Timothy. From 2 Timothy 3, and I'm reading from verse 14 onwards. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work.